Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and you may have noticed that we're in the midst of Pledge Drive here on WFIU. So I thought it would be a good week to go back and listen to some of the Interstates programming that your dollars have helped support. And if you haven't supported us yet, now might be a good time to start. This first segment is from a conversation I had with actress Diane Condrat, who spent a good bit of her professional life based here in south-central Indiana. We're talking about what it meant to her to make a career in the arts after growing up in a family where that was almost unimaginable. This originally aired in January 2022, but it was recorded five months before that. It's a real artifact, the oldest interstates recording in existence. So let's go way back and hear what the show sounded like at the beginning. So were your parents artistic? Nope. My dad played the accordion. Does that count? Does that count? I come from poor people. And amongst poor people, the arts, especially a career in the arts, is nothing but crazy talk. That's just wrong-minded. And um, my father's uh, Ukrainian. My mother's Lithuanian. And I know that my dad at one point, I was talking about how I didn't sing well enough. And he said, oh, you're Ukrainian. It doesn't matter how well you sing, you just sing. (laughs) But even saying that, there wasn't wasn't that much music or art around the house. My parents were big theater goers, though. I was born in Newark, New Jersey, and they, if my mother had kept the programs from the year that she saw the premieres of South Pacific, The Music Man, uh, West Side Story, I mean, they went to the theater all the time, but they didn't want me to be in the theater. Were they struggling financially? Or were they sort of in that that sort of immigrant kind of thing of like, be, actually, they get here and they manage to. They came make from, work. both of them came from quite poor families, but they ended up being in certainly upper middle class, I'd say, by the time I was, you know, like in grammar school and stuff. Um, my dad was a. Um, he was in retail and finance and retail, one of the reasons we moved as much as we did. But yeah, uh, there was a, a little bit of time before my father lost his job. Uh, the company Jacobson's in, o- in Ohio, a department store, uh, when I was like a junior in high school, I wanted a dress. And I thought, oh, that dress is expensive. And then I thought, well, I'll just say. And so I said, and they said I could have it like right away. And I thought, hold on. I think we're rich. And then my father lost his job. <laughs> and that was the end of that was the end of that. He became an insurance man and my parents lost quite a few friends because I was shocked. Quite a few friends because they were not in the appropriate um, social strata anymore. Ain't that ain't that garbage? How old were you when that happened? Uh, I was in high school. In I was high halfway school. through high school. Did you feel like it affected you? Um, I didn't feel it that much, but my mom did because she had. I remember the brochures she had of New England, uh, fancy New England colleges, where she was hoping to sell me into a very lucrative marriage, uh, and set me up for the rest of time. And I. I mean, they were all over the place. I mean, I did well in school. Uh, Those brochures were all over the place, and they were very nice. And when she realized she had to send me to a state college, she was heartbroken. So what about you? Were you already planning on studying theater? 
I was very cowed by my parents, and especially my mother was. There are people who listen, who are listening to this, who I'm sure know my mom because she lived here for a while. She's a very powerful personality, and so I did what I was told. And I know people who you like broke up with their parents when they graduated from high school and went and did whatever they wanted. I did what I was told, which was go to school. So as it turned out, for the first two years of college. I switched my major. I wasn't allowed to be a theater major. I switched my major at least three times, ended up taking all of the requirements for a Bachelor of Arts. And then when I, oops, sorry, got married when I was 20 to a writer, much to my mother's continuing chagrin. Um, yeah, this is one of the happiest memories of my life. I was walking to class the first day of my junior year of college and all the books in my arms were theater books because I was finally going to be a theater major. And I was on uh, at least half scholarship. I auditioned, and they were like, oh, we'll give some money. So, yeah, I was so happy to be able to finally be a theater major. What? How did you manage to do that in relation to your mother? Like, did you, was it get, having gotten married? Yes. These were the olden days, you understand. So when, once that happened, they were so mad. I mean, whoo, they were mad. I started dating the person I married in May, and we got married on August 2nd. And part of that was that I was going to get to be a theater major. Because all bets were off. They weren't going to pay. They were mad. They weren't going to pay for college anymore. And so he would get his money from one window, and he'd walk three windows down, and he'd give it all back uh, to pay for my undergrad. Because <laughs> he, was, he was teaching there at the time. He had just graduated with an MFA in fiction writing. From This was at Bowling Green State University. Okay, so you studied theater, ultimately. You managed to study theater in college. And then what next? How did you sort of move from college to actually working in theater? Oh, I have, I have nothing but... I have really sad stories for you today. I have another sad, I have a, that was kind of a happy story. Um, this is a very sad story. It took me years to recover from this story. When I graduated from college, I went to something called URTA, University Resident Theater Auditions. I believe they still have them. They're national auditions for jobs and for MFA programs and stuff like that. I got 14 job offers, some from London, some from Paris. I won't even name, I'm going to start to cry, I won't even name the, the programs, the masters, the MFA programs that I received offers of full scholarships from, but my confidence was so low that I absolutely remember thinking, what is wrong with these colleges that they send people to interview you who are mentally ill? because people were telling me they were going to build their entire master's degree program around me. This happened a lot at those things. And I didn't believe, I thought they were crazy. And um, then everybody talked about it because this was after, after I'd been married two years. So my parents were back in the conversation. Everybody talked about it and Tony had a job offer in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And he said the magic words that, don't worry, more opportunities will come your way. For anyone who's listening, take the opportunities the first time they come your way. 
do not, I repeat, do not wait for them to come again. Um, so I never took any of those 14 offers. And I moved to the East Coast to a, a very large uh, population base is uh, the Tidewater area in Virginia. All right. So you were in Norfolk. And did you come to Bloomington from there? Yes. And so you're moving from Norfolk to Bloomington with two young kids. Yes. And- my daughter was three months old and my son was five when I first came to Bloomington. And you were already acting and you're coming here wanting to keep acting. How did it feel to move here? It was stunning. Um, I had a dream. There's a cemetery at High Street in Covenanter that people who live here will know of because it's a beautiful little, little cemetery. And there used to be, there's still one great big tree that kind of hangs over the road, but there used to be another one and it's gone down now. And I had a, before I had ever seen the cemetery, I had a dream that was a photograph of that cemetery. And the voice in the dream said, I hope you're ready because this is what it's going to be like. Because even though I was in Virginia, which is not, you know, when people say, oh, I want to be an actor, they they do not say, get thee to Tidewater, Virginia. Uh, There was a lot going on. There was a lot going on there. And um, I came here, and there was not. Uh, Certainly no cardinal stage. And I did what I do, which is go to every single organization that I can find that is doing theater and bring my resume and bring my headshot and say hello. And I'm polite for a little while. It's really trying, but I do it. And uh, I might even wear some clothes that look like you could wear them, you know, for a commercial or something. And uh, so I did that and I did not find what I needed um, in town. And so I started uh, producing myself as uh, Oasis Productions. I had 2000 my father died, and I had $2,000 uh, given to me by my mom when my father died. And I used that $2,000 for the next 18 years. I spent it, and I made it back. And that was the money for a theater company. Wow. Um, I worked for free. Uh, mostly we had to pay um, rent, we had to pay royalties. Of course, we had to have some kind of sets, we had some kind of lights. The only people who reliably got paid were technicians because I, I didn't know enough people who were like, sure, I'll run your lights, oh, who could actually run lights, right? Um, so uh, Oasis Productions was small cast shows with great roles for women. Gee, I wonder who any of those women might be. So. As a producer, it was a pleasure to be able to do pieces that were engaging on an intellectual level. I remember doing a Naomi Wallace play called One Flea Spare that actually I was looking into right before COVID happened. It's about the last time the Black Plague came to Britain and these people that are stuck in their houses with a guard because there's been plague in their house. Uh, And somebody came up to me at the end of the, a woman came up to me at the end of the show and she said, why do you do plays like this? This woman is suffering and you're giving an example that's very, very dark. I have another play that was amongst my favorites. Perhaps people remember Mom and the Razor Blades by Wendy Hammond, who used to teach at Ann Arbor. 
Um, it's a it's a part of a trio of plays called Family Lives: Three Brutal Comedies, and it happens on Mom's birthday, and uh, it's a terrifying play. She beats one of her children to death behind a couch with a baseball bat, um, and it's like a cartoon with stuff flying out. So. If I have something that I favor the most, it's um, dark comedy is my favorite. But I like darkness all around, all around the neighborhood. Not as much as some people, and I'm happy to say I don't remember this playwright's name. He's a man, and he's, uh, he's made a lot of money, and people really like him. And I can't remember his name, and I'm glad about it. Uh, his plays are so dark. Maybe banging my head into something about hitting my head with nails or banging my oh he's famous I hate his work there's a there's a pessimism that comes from some people when they do dark stuff that it's like well you should you should kill yourself instead you know I don't have to read this you should eat it choke on it and die because obviously that's what you want to do right so there has to be, I think, in the stuff that I like, either stuff that's so funny, and like when we did our Fringe show, me and Karen Irwin, a Fringe show written by Eric Pfeffinger, Assholes and Orioles, that we took to different places. Um, it's so dark that you're laughing and laughing because it's like, oh, no, this is awful and so true that then you are you feel better because you've laughed about it so that's one thing that can happen in in comedy but the other thing that when something is really dark and it's in dramatic work there's an indomitable spirit i think that for me really always exists in women because the oppression of women is so popular it's a worldwide popular event for hundreds and thousands of years across all kinds of cultures. It's like, wow, okay, how does that work? So by the nature of doing plays that focused on at least having 50% of the roles be really good women's roles meant that you were highlighting an oppressive situation that still she lived she lived through it, and sh her eyes are still open. And, of course, her heart is even more open because it's been shattered so many times and then had to rebuild itself uh, into a, a more vibrantly functional organ. That was a, an, all these are very long answers. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We're all about long answers on interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and you're listening to our Pledge Drive special from WFIU, your public radio station. It's time for a break, a good chance for you to call in and show your support. After that, we're going to hear about limestone mills and holy places. Back soon. It's Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. You're listening to our Pledge Drive special, where we dig into the archives and dust off some favorite moments. Up next, an exploration of limestone country, which you're probably in if you're listening on the radio. The first person you'll hear is Joyce Jeffries, who grew up among limestone workers in southern Indiana. It would be the northeast corner 
is where my grandparents lived in the corner there. In? Olenek. And then the little house behind it, which is kind of on the alley, is where I was born. And uh, my dad had to walk up to Doc Dolan's house, which was like two blocks and six inches of snow to get him. <laughs> but I just, I think it's significant that I was born a mile from quarries and never really noticed that until recent years. I'm kind of proud of that, really. <laughs> I feel like I was part of it. I've been around stone all my life, but I didn't really realize how closely I was associated with it. In 1991, I went to work at Star Quarry office, and uh, the girl that worked in the office said she would introduce me to everyone. Nine out of ten people that came through that door was someone I'd known all my life, including the truck drivers. I mean, it was amazing. I didn't realize. And then I thought, well, on my block, there were at least three or four guys that worked for stone companies. We just took it for granted because that was what, all we knew. One day, one of the truck drivers came in, and he had a beard and sunglasses, and he looked at me and he says, Joy, you don't know who I am, do you? And I said, no, who are you? <laughs> and he said, Gary Matlock. Well, we used to run around in the same gang when we were in high school, and one time he took me to work, and he drove from Olytic to Bloomington in seven minutes. <laughs> He drove like a maniac. He, he's passed away since then, but he was a funny guy. Let's pause up here. Okay, great. A nice little overview. Um, basically, as we walk through here, this is the old mill, and then we'll end up in the new mill, which is adjacent. But as we walk through here, we're kind of going backwards through the process. So here, right where we're, uh, where we're standing here is where the finished stone will get packed onto pallets and then go out to, to wait outside to be shipped to wherever it's going. Then we have the cutter yard, which is typically where a lot of the stone gets finished. And in the far back, you can see through the door in the back there are actual quarry blocks. So that's where the block comes in and starts the process. So you're kind of seeing from this vantage point the entire process, but in reverse. My name's Dorian Bybee. We are at Bybee Stone Company. My family's business has been here since 1979. I grew up working almost every summer here from the time I was in late middle school or whenever it was legally allowed for, you know, before you know, I, there was no child labor, fortunately. but. Uh, but yeah, I've been working here summers uh, since I was a kid, and it's a beautiful October day. Uh, it's a nice day to be at a, at a mill. I'm Joyce Jeffries. We're here at Stonecroft in Bloomington in the courtyard, and flowers are beautiful, and the birds are around, and it's a really nice day. I've only been here since last July, but it's it's been nice. I've met some interesting people and some nice people, and. Mostly the aides are very good. They'll do about anything I ask them to do. Uh, it's almost like a cathedral at times. Yeah. Piles and piles of dust. There's a guy sweeping the dust out, shoveling it into a bin. Big machines, cleaners, lots of stone, lots of 
pieces of stone in all different states. Bales of something like straw. The floor is just covered with dust. It's like we're walking on the moon. You really need to keep your head on a swivel and watch out for the overhead cranes. You don't want to go underneath those. My grandfather, Jeffries, his sister, Floyd, was married to my, my grandma's brother, Jesse S. Owen. They both worked in Dark Hall Quarry, which was down near Fayetteville now, but Jesse got caught between two stones and kind of got his insides mashed. I talked to his daughter, Christine, about two years ago. She just passed away about a year and a half ago, but she was in her 90s. And she said their neighbors came to school and got them, her and her brothers, and, and took them home. And then they took them to the hospital. They went to see their dad. And she said he told them to be good and, and help their mom. And then they went home. But after they got home, somebody came and told their mom that uh, he thought of something else he wanted to tell her. But she didn't get to the hospital before he passed away. Christine, Jesse's wife, uh, had three kids. They were like nine, 10, and 13. And so they took the body back to Horse Cave for burial. My grandpa rode on the train with the body, but he hired a taxi to take my, my grandma and Aunt Floyd and her three kids. Plus my dad was five and my Aunt Irene was two. So there they were. And my, my grandma was pregnant with her third child. So five little kids and two, you know, widow and her sister-in-law in a horse and wagon, which I, it takes about four hours to drive down there now, so I don't know how long it took them, but I'm sure it was a stressful time because they were grieving and then they had those kids to control. My grandpa's brother, Ed, had, he got married and had a, ba had a baby, James, and when James was 11 months old, his wife died. Well, James was the youngest. I think they had four or five kids. And so then he remarried and had some more kids. I think he had 12 kids altogether. And um, then his second wife left him. And so there he was with all these kids. But um, Stanley was one of the younger ones. And I guess he was 10 or 11. He was playing in the stacks, rock stacks at Dark Hall. And he fell and hit his head on a rock on a Sunday night, and he died on Tuesday. This was 1925. And of course, Ed, being left with all those kids, and you know, the youngest one, James, was only 11 months old, and he just passed away last year. It had to have been hard on him. Some guys got caught in a between a railroad car or something and just got squished. I mean, 
and Stones fell. This one boy was 16, and he was a water boy. I didn't even know they had water boys till my mom told me that back in the 90s. But um, apparently they had little boys to carry water to them in the quarries. But this one boy was just standing there, and a big rock fell on him and crushed him. Stuff like this happened all the time. People, you know, drowned in the quarries. There's been a lot of that. One of the people I went to school with drowned in the 60s. Him and another guy. That, like a teenager? Yeah. They were, they were still in high school. In the early 50s, in Oleg, they had a union office there at the end of Main Street. And I can remember my mom and dad driving through there, and there would be this long line of men covered in stone dust. They looked like Pillsbury Doughboys. That's the best I can describe it. I wish I had a picture of it. It was just an amazing sight, this. I mean, a long line. They, you know, there may be two or three hundred of them waiting in line to vote on a strike or not. When they had a strike, it really affected a lot of things, you know, a lot of people too. But they didn't strike that much, I don't think. But at the turn of the last century, they were only making like 15 cents an hour at tops. And we can't imagine that now. No. Were the strikes effective? Were they able to get better working conditions? Most of the time they did, yeah. Because my family had worked in stone so much, they just didn't, it was just something they did. They didn't, I don't think they really understood what they were doing and how much of this country has been built from our stone. It's amazing how many people don't know much about it. I grew up in Indianapolis and people don't know anything about it really. But my address on my house was carved out of stone. The houses in line are out of limestone. If you go down, down to Indianapolis, I mean, it's everywhere. The Circle Monument, I used to see it when I was a kid and not even know where it came from. I didn't. I knew no one that worked in a stone mill, uh, which is amazing. What, about 30-some uh, capitals, state capitals are built out of it? It's just everywhere. And when I, I used to work, my dad had a vending company in the 90s. I drove around all over Indianapolis, and I couldn't believe all the stuff I saw. You'd go in really bad neighborhoods, and there would be old churches or buildings with Christian caps. It's just unbelievable. There's a real big building with Corinthian caps on the street near Thomas Hendrickson's house. He was a vice president, and it's in a real bad neighborhood. Uh, there's a bar that has a sign that says no gang colors, and you go around the corner, and then here's this building with Corinthian caps and stuff all over it, and uh, I'm not even sure it's in use, but it's just everywhere. You'll see it on old garages carving work, uh, uh, but just unbelievable. But it's everywhere. But it's just amazing that so many people don't know anything about it in their own state. Can you tell me your name? Tom Dixon. I came out here in 1980, spring of 80. They just bought this place and ended up going to Texas. Uh, but uh, I took an apprenticeship down in Olytic in 79. I didn't even really know that carving was going on. I was going to the art school down there and I didn't know they were doing any carving work really. A guy come in and told me about it. He goes, uh, you ought to get an apprenticeship down there. He saw me working in the sculpture department. And he said, uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff down there. So uh, I come down here right away and and uh, went to work at the art center up there. And a the guy that used to work here had been working there. And I saw the pictures of what was going on here. 
So I came right down here and applied for a job and I've been here ever since. It's been a great experience. This is very similar to what you'd see on the Notre Dame Cathedral. And I only knew that because I painted a picture of the uh, Hunchback Notre Dame in high school and actually in the background painted the Notre Dame Cathedral and I painted the saddleback molding, which I think was done in the 1100s. I don't know where they got the idea for that. On Dillman Road in 37, there's a semi-truck place. And if you take Dillman Road to the first driveway down, it goes into Star and it's a real rough winding road. But you could go there. And they have a quarry up on the north side, Star Quarry. And I had gone up there too at times to take things to the foreman and, and pick things up and stuff, which was kind of exciting. <laughs> what was exciting about it? Well just to be there where they're querying the stone and see it and everything. When I was working for Culligan, we had drinking water machines, you know, and, and all the mills rented them from us. Well, the McMillan Mill, which at that time was on Olytic Road, is no longer in existence. They called one day and it was in the middle of August, hotter than heck, and they were out of water. Well, our delivery man was booked up solid, and I said, well, I, I won't have a delivery man for a couple of days, but I'll bring you some myself. So I put six five-gallon bottles of water in the back seat of my car, which almost made it drag the ground. And so I went over there, and I pulled up to the edge of the mill, and this guy was standing there smoking a cigarette. And I said, I have your water for your water coolers. Do you know where to take it? He goes, yeah, I'll just drive across the mill. And I said, drive across the mill? He said, yeah. I started driving across that mill and I could actually feel the spirit of men and the stone. I'm not kidding you, it was a really spiritual experience. I mean, tears were running down my face. Because my neighbors had worked in that mill, you know. I don't think they understood the impact that they had. But that's why I wanted to honor the stone workers because they just went and did their job every day. And they've built the nation. All these buildings and stuff that just monumental. <sighs> I can hardly I can talk about it even now. It's still just, I mean, it was just, it was like I was in a holy place. That was Joyce Jeffries talking about limestone and limestone workers in southern Indiana. We also heard from Dorian Bybee and Tom Dixon at the Bybee Stone Mill. This is Interstates from WFIU. I'm Alex Chambers, and this is our Pledge Drive special. We're going to take a break so you can show your support for the show. When we come back, we'll hear about an interactive painting from arts activist Carla Guerrero. Or is it Carla Guerrero? We'll let her clarify after this. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and this is our Pledge Drive special, where we're going back through our vast archives of over two months to share some of our favorite stories. This next one is about a woman who uses a painting of a butterfly to try to build community. When I was out in Columbus last fall, I came across a wall with a pattern painted on it. The bricks had been painted white, and there were black shapes on top of that. I wondered to myself, street art? Graffiti? Mural? Actually, I didn't wonder at all. It was obviously a mural. Murals might be the oldest forms of human art. 
There's a cave in Indonesia with a painting of a wild Celebes warty pig that's over 45,000 years old. The painting, I mean, not the pig. There's the Cave of Hands in Argentina, a rock wall covered with stencils of left hands, as if a crowd of people is waving at you from 10,000 years ago. But those are old and protected. Most of us don't usually feel invited to join in painting public spaces. I mean, that's the whole thing about graffiti, right? Part of the thrill is that you're not supposed to be doing it. Even the great Mexican muralists of a century ago, they were making populist art. They were envisioning a new society, a society where art was for the people. But as far as I know, Diego Rivera wasn't inviting the people to paint. Still, murals were an important part of larger political movements. For the Chicano movement in the U.S., they were a way to communicate when language or literacy was a barrier. They depicted struggles against oppression in the U.S., they gave people a sense of collective identity, and they emphasized the lives of people who weren't usually part of the story. In Northampton, Massachusetts, there's a mural showing three centuries of women's history that I would see whenever I went downtown as a kid. We can look at those murals and be reminded of people whose stories were left untold. We might be impressed by the artistry of the work. Still, we probably don't feel invited to put paint on the wall. But then, last fall, I was at the annual Fiesta Latina in Columbus, and I saw kids painting the wings of a giant butterfly. It was at one end of the festival, past the Brazilian Friends Band on the outdoor stage, past the stands selling horchata and tacos al pastor, past the booths for local volunteer networks, there was a big wooden board, about six feet by nine, with the outline of the butterfly in black. And there was a woman helping the kids fill their palettes with color. This is called Nuestra Salas. So it's a mural project between uh, Columbus Area Arts Council, Sucasa Columbus. I'm the project coordinator for this. My name is Carla Guerrero. I work for Sucasa Columbus as the youth engagement coordinator. I'm pretty uh, passionate about mural projects out in Los Angeles. Um, so I've done quite a bit of studying around mural projects that are done basically around Chicano art though, so Mexican-American, so looking at different um, symbolic things like the Virgen de Guadalupe, and they do big mural projects where they put even like famous icons from like Latinidad. Um, so I thought what would be so cool is if the community was to be a part of that, right? If they all came up and added, because the mural you see, it gets commissioned and then you have artists that come in, but never is it community folks who are just adding to that piece, right? Being that tangible part of it I think is what's really important and what leaves in the minds of like kids and families you know because they're like oh yeah we were a part of that we did that which is the exciting part um, which I wanted to do with the murals because I always walk by murals and I'm like oh, I wonder who did that I wish I could be a part of that you know so now looking at this you could be like oh yeah I was you know but this was an experiment to be honest. It seemed like it was working. One side of the board had that outline of the monarch to honor all the immigrants in the community. The monarch takes a long flight between Mexico and here to the United States. It's a very delicate animal. So it's kind of a metaphor for all of the immigrants and much of our community coming here to Columbus and migrating all that long way. So when you say uh, my community, can you tell me what you mean? When I say my community, I think about the people that I've experienced, that we experience the same things. We're fighting for the same cause. Um, we're making space for ourselves. We're trying to get the same resources. We're trying to get to clinics. We're trying to get food. We're trying to get clothing. And we're just finding ways to 
to get those resources without it costing so much money. With all the challenges that we face, we're trying to see ways to move around a system that kind of prevents us from certain things. So for example, I'm a DACA student, so every two years I have to renew my DACA. So things like that prevent me from getting government help. So community comes in and is like, hey, we're going to help you out. These are the resources here. Can art be one of those resources? I think Carla would say so. This mural project gave people another way of thinking about community, too. The wall was freestanding, so I walked around to the other side. A man had just painted something on it. The flag of of Nicaragua, Central America. I just put the name of the country, Nicaragua, right? And I put uh, one of the our famous words that we use in Nicaragua. You can spell it Diacachimba. So it's kind of difficult to say it, but it's like saying... I'm happy, I'm good, I'm, I'm Diacachimba. <laughs> yeah. That was Enrique and Tasnim. As they said, they're from Nicaragua. And they came to Columbus for summer vacation and to make some extra money. And uh, now we have three years over here. Really? <laughs> yeah. You're in Columbus? Yep. You yes. live here? Yes. How's it been? Actually, very good. I mean, it's totally different, our culture and everything. Food, people, yeah. jobs and everything, you know, but we love it. I mean, we have a good experience over here. If you were like less sure. <laughs> what do you say? You were like, I asked how your experience was, and, and he was like, yeah, it's been great. And you were like, ah. yeah, I like it. You know what? When we go to another cities, we miss Columbus. Yeah, I don't know why, but we miss Columbus. Tasneem came to Columbus with no idea what it would be like. I have no expectation, to be honest. I just said I just go to work for three months. I was not expecting anything, but we are here. We like it. Like I told you, we feel at home. (laughs) How long do you expect to be here? We have no idea. (laughs) We have no idea about it. We go to our country every year. We go to visit, but we don't have plan to go back right now. Everyone in Columbus was talking about what a lovely place it was. Could it really be that great? I thought it might have had to do with my public radio microphone. And that he had a different idea. It could be maybe because you have, you have uh, several cultures over here. You have Central American people, Mexican people, North American people, Colombian people, Venezuelan people, also Brazilian people. You know, and uh, you were like, how in the world, this is a small town, can get together too many different cultures in once. And like she said, we feel like home over here. This art that we were standing in front of was about all those different identities and more. It was another board, painted white. At the top, it said soy. I am. Mixed soy, güera. And people had written all kinds of things on it. I am mujer mexicana, immigrante, una colombiana, resiliencia, dominicana, una buena bilingüe, chicana, book lover, vecinos de enlace, mexicana, Puerto Rico, happy, Veracruz, go venados, and Diacachimba. 
Here's Carla again, who created the piece. What we do here is going to inspire other folks to also do projects alike and talk about what's going on, right? Um, and you see that as people come and add to the artwork. Um, and they're just kind of talking about it like, uh, what should I write? You know, what is my identity? Who am I? Uh, you know, apart from a mom or, you know, these parts about ourselves that we don't often get to talk about. So these spaces just serve as like a cultural conversation where it's like, yeah, I am Puerto Rican or yeah, I am Dominican. I am Mexican. Like, you know, and like embracing that, you know, we have a couple of um, this is Go Venados is a, um, a running club. Um, in Chicago. Um, so she was like, yeah, this is me. You know, I'm a runner, you know, and people didn't know that about me, you know, because they only see what what I do for others. Right. Um, so they're sharing those parts of themselves. One of them is WAPA, you know, embracing like um, self-confidence, you know, in the community. Uh, we have Dreamer. You know, we're all dreamers in some way. We dream up futures, what our communities might look like, what we hope them to be. Um, and I think that this piece kind of creates a canvas for people to be like, who are we? You know, what what does our expression look like? So yeah, like I think that bilingual is also really important. We're bilingual, we speak different languages and we, we find community through that because it's exciting to like know somebody else who speaks another language or multiple languages, you know, and connect through that and be like, oh, well, I do that too. I'm taking classes in this and that forms connections, right? So I think that that's what it is. I think art has a really fun way of uh, bringing out people's fun sides and messiness. And I'm trying to gather more art friends because I have like a background in um, art studio. Um, so I'm trying to get more artists to kind of form like a club of some sort so we can do like activist artwork because that's kind of what I'm about. Kind of art artivism. That's what we used to call it. Artivism. And I love that. I think there's so much we could do here in the community, even if it's like art projects that are like based on social justice initiatives, I think would be such a cool way of like connecting people. In the future, I see like a nonprofit yeah. cultural arts center here in Columbus. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's that's a long term goal, but sure. it's there somehow. Yeah. I'll be yeah. organizing towards that goal. So awesome. Um, can you say your name again? So yeah. I have it on this recording. My name is Carla Guerrero. Okay, you pronounced it differently this time. Oh, oh I said it, Carla Guerrero. Carla Guerrero, it sounds better like that. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the angle away this time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Carla Guerrero, Carla Guerrero. I'm like code switching. Yeah, it's totally code switching. Well, I, yeah, I felt like you were like really, yeah, you're holding that identity the first time we talked. Yeah. And then like this time you're like, I don't know, talking about coming from DePaul. Yeah, it does. And you know, yeah, because I'm Chicana and my culture is Mexican-American. So when I'm when I'm with my more le like Mexican friends, things like that, there's a different vernacular that happens. There's a different way that we talk, um, different Spanish words and stuff like that. Whereas English, it's more um, the way I was taught was more direct or more organized maybe uh, is a good way maybe uh whereas with with spanish it's like ah, no me importa. like it doesn't matter how i say things you know but i think it is you know it, it's always it's that identity piece of going in between both spaces and figuring out what's comfortable and meeting different people as well right like what parts do i show what what is accepted what is not because i think that as an immigrant i have those fears you know what is accepted what is not what makes people feel comfortable what doesn't um, and it's kind of how we we all are when we come from different 
um, different cultures. And we pick up from different cultures. We just want to be respectful, things like that. So I think it's always a conscious effort for me um, to be navigating between those identities. But the more I get comfortable, the more you see kind of my 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 use of the Chicana lingui- linguistic come out more uh, just because I get more comfortable, you know, and I'm like, oh, OK, this is fun, you know. <laughs> Later that day, I was standing by a memorial for limestone workers and the indigenous people who've lived here for more generations than anyone else. I was talking to a man about a bus when a car went by. It was pulling a trailer. On the trailer was a wall, about six feet by nine, with a bunch of words painted on it. It was messy and colorful. It made me think of another wall in a cave where a bunch of hands had been stenciled on. Were they waving, singing? I don't know. But both of those walls, from October and long ago, held a kind of presence. It was people saying, we're here. Even when we're gone, still, we're here. We are here every day for you, our listeners. I'm Alex Chambers, and you've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. We're always looking for new stories about art, culture, and how it all feels in southern Indiana and beyond. So if you've got something, be in touch at wfiu.org slash interstates. It's Pledge Drive, but don't worry, we've still got your quick moment of slow radio. But first, as always, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Airport People. All right, time to go back to a favorite place. go wrong listening to metal recycling, can you? That's just off the Beeline Trail in Bloomington, Indiana. And that's it for Interstates. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>